Support for Wavemakers comes from listeners like you and the Tampa Bay Times. The Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper is available around the Tampa Bay area and online at tampabay.com. Thanks to the Tampa Bay Times for their support. Today we bring you an encore presentation of Wavemakers. Janet and Tom will be back with a new show November 14th. We are not taking calls this hour. Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay area. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And answering the phones for us today is Irene. If you want to join our conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663 and she'll get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. Today's guest has been making waves at the intersection of race and media for decades. First around the Tampa Bay area and Florida, and now across the country, as NPR's first TV critic. NPR even lets him work in St. Pete, where he's lived <laughs> since 1995, when he became pop music critic for the St. Pete Times. He was later TV critic and editorial writer. He's a fellow at the Pointer Institute and serves on the board of Creative Pinellas. Eric Deggins is also the author of Race Bader, How the Media Wield Dangerous Words to Divide a Nation. Welcome to Wavemakers, Eric. I saw what you did there, man. You know, the wave, making <laughs> waves. You got that? You got that? See, that's, so why, you like guys are, that's why you guys are here. You are <laughs> radio pros. I dig it. Uh, well, maybe amateurs, but uh, you're the real pro, and we're glad to have <laughs> glad you here. Glad to have you here. I mean, there's a lot no, to talk glad about. To be here. Yeah, a lot to talk about. Let's start by going back to a back a decade when you published Race Bader. Mm -hmm. um, that was 11 years ago, about a little bit more than 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Has anything changed since then? Some of the observations that you made yes, in that book. It's gotten worse. Okay. <laughs> Just about everything. There, that there's was what I thought when I re was reading it over the weekend. I was like, oh my God. There's a, there's a chapter about uh, diversity in scripted television, and that's gotten better. So at least we can say that. Oh, but that's yeah, got a lot um, better. Um, you know, basically, I was writing about the dynamic of media outlets using prejudice and stereotypes and racism in particular to fuel their uh, fortunes. And of course, that's only gotten worse. And in the, especially in the case of Fox News, which has kind of pioneered this practice, um, they've gotten more obvious about it. You know, uh, I keep threatening one of these days to write a column that would say the death of the code word because we're almost to the point where people just won't even use code words anymore and they'll just come right out. Uh, and by people, I mean Donald Trump. But they'll just come yeah. right out and say what what uh, all the prejudice that is simmering underneath the surface. And when I wrote the book, um, you know, Newt, Newt Gingrich, who was running for president at the time, would make a speech and, and call Barack Obama um, the, the, the nation's first food stamp president. Mm. Uh, you know, what the heck does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, he would say... Uh, it meant that more people use food stamps under his administration than any previous. And, of course, you know, he would sort of omit the fact that uh, Barack Obama first took power um, as the economy was disintegrating in the Great Recession. So, of course, a lot of people were going on food stamps. Uh, and instead, he wanted to make this connection between food stamps and race and the first black president and all this terrible stuff. Well, now, you know, people just sort of come right out and say, you know, we're scared of transgender people and, you know, we think uh, America's black and brown dominated cities are filled with crime and terribleness. And, you know, the code words are going out out the window. 
Um, and slaves learned useful skills. And slaves learned useful skills, uh, personal benefits in yeah. addition to, um, yeah. I mean, and 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 what's so you know I, I went on um, a Florida this week, of course, and talked a lot about those um, education standards. And what's so scary about that is that there's just little nods inside those standards uh, to. Um, previously unacceptable views about slavery and about uh, the history of race relations in the state and in the country. And and once you give a little nod, then it just grows. As my book shows, you know, when, when, when these media outlets can make money with these little nods towards racism, then, of course, they get more and more outrageous in order to draw people's attention. And then you get to today where things are just barely veiled at all. Tell us about where the, the, the title of the book comes from. <laughs> That's an interesting story. So um, a, a while ago, uh, I got an email from a reader. I was, in the, I was working for the Tampa Bay Times at the time, then the St. Petersburg Times. And I got an email from a reader saying, did you know that Bill O'Reilly was talking about you <laughs> last night? And I was like, what? You know. So uh, Bill O'Reilly, who was then the biggest star at Fox News, had done this whole Talking Points memo commentary where he talked about how white people can't talk to black people about race anymore because it's too incendiary and it's too likely you'll be called racist. And one of the biggest race baiters in the country is Eric Deggins from the St. Petersburg Times. And I was like, <laughs> where did he come up with my name? How did this happen? And, you know, of course he didn't. This was before the widespread use of the Internet. <laughs> this right? Was, I mean, well, you know, the Internet was in use, but um, I had written a... I think what had happened is I had written a column about um, he, he had done this radio show where he talked about going to um, Sylvia's, this, this well-known restaurant in Harlem, and being surprised that, you know, middle-class black people were there and they weren't grabbing their crotches and, and yelling <laughs> obscenities at the, at the waitresses. You think I'm exaggerating, but that's pretty much what he said. And, and, and I and a lot of people wrote columns about how, um, you know, boneheaded that was. But I think that's what set him off. I don't know because he didn't call me. Um, of course, uh, or, or, um, you know, give me a chance to respond. Um, he basically, you know, had this sort of vitriolic thing and he called me one of the biggest race baiters in the country. So I wound up writing a rebuttal to it that was, um, in the Tampa Bay Times and also in the Huffington Post. And I was telling a friend this while I was working on the book and he said, oh, you got to call your book race baiter. Talk about the history of, the, of that term, race baiter. He's right, right. Well, also, also, I mean, you know, in a way it was a reference to that story, which I tell in the book, but it was also a nod to how the term race baiter has been weaponized over the years. Originally, it was a term that was developed to talk about white politicians who were using uh, race-based appeals to sort of gin up support, particularly in the 1920s and 30s. And, you know, um, we, we've talked about that a lot more recently because we've talked about the Confederate statue mm -hmm. controversy and the fact that all these statues kind of went up to Confederate generals, not in the wake of the Civil War immediately, but in the 1920s and 30s when, um, you know, white, white uh, people were working actively to try and, and, and pull back voting rights from black people and institute, you know, these Jim Crow laws. So, um, so, so race baiting sort of emerged as a term back then to talk about white politicians weaponizing racial issues against black people. And, you know, fast forward to when I was doing my book and you had these conservatives like Rush Limbaugh 
and Bill O'Reilly using the term race baiter to refer to um, people, often people of color, who just wanted to talk about racial issues. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, th- because I think these guys know what they're doing and they realize how they're weaponizing racism. So part of what you try to do is you, you know, in rhetorical combat is you try to take your opponent's greatest advantage and you turn it against them. So your opponent's greatest advantage in a fight like this is the moral authority that the civil rights movement has and the moral authority that you have in combating and standing against racism and and trying to root it out in society. So if you can make the search to root out racism itself be seen as racist, then that's that you know that's how you get away with the stuff that these guys have done. So, um, you know, all of that sort of inspired mm-hmm. the the title of the book. Well, and 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 now they kind of call it identity politics, right? That that's right. one of the things that they are railing against identity politics. It's a similar kind of thing. I see it. Yeah. Well, again, it's always this idea of sort of seeing whiteness as as the general. Um, average ideal and anything that uh, that departs from that is what you say is identity politics. But in fact, what Donald Trump does is the epitome of identity politics. He creates this identity uh, for his followers that involves supporting him, that involves rejecting, for example, um, the idea that that uh, or, or accepting the idea that um, immigrants from Muslim countries might inherently be dangerous or that um, you know, uh, non-white immigrants from uh, Mexico and Latin America are inherently a problem, or uh, accepting that um, you know African nations are somehow uh, you know l- less than European nations. All of the, this whole set of ideals that go along with this identity that he has created. But the core of the identity, of course, is a lockstep, unquestioning support of him and uh, conservative politics. Um, and and but but again, you know what you do in these rhetorical fights is you always say the other guy is doing this thing that you yourself are doing the most to distract from what you're doing. So people will say, you know, black people and and non-white people and even women who want to talk about gender and talk about race that they're indulging in some kind of identity politics as if. As if politics was ever anything other than that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> or you're being all divisive. Politics, all politics is yeah. identity politics. Even just talking about these things, yeah. you're divisive. Yeah, well, that's, again, if you, can, if you can get the world to accept that by, just by talking about it, it's divisive, then, then you've won in a way. Because if the system is already in your favor and you're trying to stop people from correcting it, the main thing you want to do is stop people from talking about it. And stop s- smart people from thinking about now it. Now they don't even want us to talk about... American history. Right. Well, they want to <laughs> redefine that, it. They want to, sure. yeah. They, they exactly, what happened? Yeah, exactly. Because sure. that might make people feel bad. It's divisive, right? So. Yeah. Well, that's the excuse. Uh, but part of it, uh, as you, I'm sure you guys have talked about, part of it is about getting people distracted in a fight that, frankly, we've already had as a nation. We already talked about this stuff decades ago and and already decided that it's important to take a look at our historical roots and correct the record because that's how um, you, you sort of bring fairness to the whole system. And we're relitigating all these fights because, 
you know, certain politicians don't want to talk about how insurance is going through the roof or how, um, you know, environmental protections need to be bolstered or how we have, you know, hmm. runaway development in this uh, in this in this state. But we don't have any kind of mass transit to help with it or any kind of comprehensive zoning to, to, to help with it. Um, it. It's much harder to talk about those prog- pro- problems. And, you know, you're much more likely to come in a conflict with uh, with big businesses and big donors. So it's much easier to distract people with this this talk about, um, you know, what is black history and what is uh, critical race theory. And unfortunately, people get hurt in that distraction tactic because, um, you know, black children get raised in a school system where their history isn't fully acknowledged. Um, you know, educators are intimidated uh, and, and constantly coerced. And 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 the state looks like a laughing stock to the rest of the nation. It's it's all uh, very disappointing. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. And our guest today is Eric Deggins, who's the uh, TV critic for NPR. If you want to join our conversation or you have a question for Eric, you can call us at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at wmnf.org. Um, we have a couple emails. Uh, Baba, who is a frequent um, emailer, uh, to WMNF. Thanks for the email, not, Bubba. Not the Bubba. <laughs> not, the, not that Bubba. I don't think so. I'm sure it's not the Bubba that I covered. No, it's not the love no. sponge. The, the one that loves <laughs> me so much. It is not Bubba the love sponge. Um, and he says, Eric is a great asset to Tampa and NPR. He wants to know what your take is on the Tim Burke rate. Tim Burke. The, um, right. I don't, I don't know uh, much about it. And Tim is someone who, um, you know, is an acquaintance. So I sort of feel sort of compromised in that way. I've always, I always thought he was a good guy. So, I, you know, I can't really I wish say, his case would get as much attention as that terrible raid on a newspaper in Kansas is getting. That's right, getting national attention. David Folkenflik has has done a piece about it for NPR. Exactly, and and I'm hoping they'll put some attention on Tim Burke's case because it is outrageous. And Tim Burke is the um, Tampa uh, journalist whose home was raided by the FBI and all of his uh, equipment seized after he um, released some videos that he discovered uh, uh, revealing things that Tucker Carlson said at Fox that ultimately led to him yeah, being dismissed. So, um, well, we don't know that they led to him being dismissed, but but there um, was a but uh, it did create a controversy. Yeah, it he created was, a controversy. He, 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 was he was later. Ultimately he was dismissed. later. There were so uh, many things that could have uh, led to his dismissal. Let's face it. Yeah, even Carlson says he doesn't know yeah. uh, why he was let go. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, anytime law enforcement. Um, seizes materials that were are owned by a journalist. Uh, it deserves extra scrutiny, and we have to be concerned about that. I mean, uh, well, the Justice Department has policies that require that for some reason they weren't followed this time. Exactly. I think the, exactly. the, the U.S. Attorney uh, for the Middle District uh, doesn't understand the internet and how it works, and doesn't understand what a journalist is. Maybe, or is just sort of willfully not paying or, attention to yes. it. <laughs> Which can often be the case. That's so true. I, I just, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, Tim's got lawyers involved, and I'm, I'm really hoping uh, that we can sort of get to the bottom of this and, and get it taken care of. Before we leave this topic, though, let's talk a little bit more, because you said something that I think is interesting. You talked about um, black representation on I think you said series TV, TV series. Mm-hmm. And that is the one area that you think has gotten better? 
that's one thing that I talk about in the book that I do think has definitely gotten better. Um, in the last 10 years since the book came out. In the out, last yeah. 10 years. Um, you know, there was a time when the NAACP was going to sue um, the uh, broadcast networks because they had advanced uh, in, in 1999, they had advanced a slate of fall TV shows where not a single... Uh, core character in 24 new shows was a person of color. They were all white. Uh, and, and, and that has definitely changed. Um, we've reached a, a level of diversity in network television and cable and streaming. Um, that's, that's miles ahead of where we were, uh, even 10 years ago. And of course, the fights remain. But, um, you know, one of the things that I thought was kind of amazing, I was just thinking about it the other day, I was reviewing this show, Reservation Dogs. Mm-hmm. That's this uh, amazing comedy uh, set in a, in a Native American uh, reservation in Oklahoma. And I, was, I remember thinking to myself, there are not one, but there's two shows on the air right now yep. centered on Native American characters. And there have been three in the last few years because there was one on on Peacock as well. And, uh, you know, even though, um, you know, Reservation Dogs is ending, that third show that I talked about got canceled, um, Dark Winds, who knows if that's coming back, that's the other show that was on AMC. But there is a sense that they have, these shows have been made, they've shown that there's great value in them, fans like them, and hopefully we will see more of that. And 10 years ago, that would have been a pipe dream to have a a major market TV show centered on Native American characters. And so, um, you know, I'm hopeful, even as we realize that there's there's more struggle to go. You, uh, we mentioned uh, previously how things have, in some ways, though, have gotten worse, uh, right. particularly on cable news. And it's interesting to me that um, your book was inspired in some ways by Bill O'Reilly, uh, who was uh, replaced by Tucker Carlson, who <laughs> was like, okay, you think Bill O'Reilly's worse than Exactly. Fox News said, hold my beer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's Let's, talking about the great replacement theory. I mean, I mean uh, <laughs> So why? But again, you know, yeah. to me, that's that's a, that's a progression. Uh, you know, Sean Hannity, whose show has aired uh, after O'Reilly and Tucker Carlson, and now airs after the, the replacement of both of those guys, Jesse Waters. Um, you know, there was we all there was always questions about you know people would appear in that show who seemed to have ties to, to white supremacist groups. Um, there was there was always this question about white supremacy sort of hanging in the background of these shows. Laura Ingraham is someone else who's been on Fox News for a long time mm-hmm. uh, and has said a lot of terrible things yeah. uh, involving race. So um, you know. I don't want to minimize Tucker Carlson because he uh, made it worse, uh, no doubt. But 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 this is something that Fox News has always done. They've always used fear of black people and non-white people to mobilize their audience, which is mostly older and, and overwhelmingly white. And you mentioned uh, in the book uh, how they use fear, right. uh, especially crime, and it. I, I, we don't have cable at home, but I, I do uh, go to the gym and I see Fox uh, on, the, on, the, on the TV uh, right next to CNN. And it's amazing watching the difference between the two. And there's constant clips on Fox of some crime going on in, you know, a city uh, right. run yeah. by Democrats. <laughs> um, uh, and, and somehow they're always black people. Um, <laughs> somehow. And, but it does seem like it's gotten worse. 
Well, it's gotten more obvious, um, most definitely. And I do think it has seeped into the news programming more. One of the things that Roger Ailes, who was the founder of Fox News and uh, who was eventually forced out over sexual harassment allegations and then died soon after, one of the things that Roger Ailes always tried to do was play, do this little two-step where opinionators would say, you know, very ideological things, but he tried to keep the news reporting uh, separate from that. And they, and he also tried hard to keep um, Fox News independent from uh, the GOP in a way that they could um, retain their power. And, and since Ailes has died, first left the company and then died, I think Fox News has let that line blur even more. And mm-hmm. you'll see reporting uh, during America's Newsroom and during what's supposed to be their news hours that's really completely ideological. And, and, um, and they've let themselves get in bed with the GOP and conservative politicians in a way that I think Ailes would have resisted if he was still um, at the channel, but it's all part of how things have just gotten more intense and gotten more obvious and gotten more in your face. Um, you know, it, it's all a progression. And, and like I said, eventually the code words are going to completely fall away. But for some reason, uh, nowadays, even white supremacists don't like to be called racist. So, there you go. <laughs> well, you also you mentioned, that's a good point you bring up in the book, is sometimes people say things that are racist that doesn't mean they're racist. Right. Um, well, especially a, because yeah. we are all inside this society that elevates white culture. Um, in uh, a, a thousand different ways that mm-hmm. we don't realize. And so if you just let that process work on you without examining it, things will come out of your mouth or you will think about things a certain way. Um, that's a product of that system more than it is a product of your conscious thought. <clears throat> and part of the big challenge in writing this book and then in giving talks connected to it and in the work that I do on NPR is trying to get people to take these actions and thoughts that they've always viewed as innocuous and say, you know, there's a deeper meaning to it. And also, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. It means you're just part of this system that we're all a part of and we're all trying to figure out how to stop contributing to it, mm-hmm. how to starve it of attention and of agency. And and it takes conscious thought and it takes thinking about things that might make you feel uncomfortable. We say, oh man, I did that. Or, oh man, I thought that way. Or, oh, I did this thing. You know, I crossed the street when there were black people walking towards me. Or, you know, I'm, I'm the guy at church who doesn't go over to the new black family and say hi to them. Or, you know, whatever. I'm the person who looks weird at people uh, who come to my rental who, who have, uh, you know, ethnic-sounding names. Uh, well, I think sometimes people are just don't even know what is offensive. Uh, you know, sure, an example sure. for myself is I posted something on TikTok and mentioned, called somebody my spirit animal, and then I was, right. and then I got, I did the classic <clears throat> thing, got on a plane, went out of the country, and then woke up, and all of a sudden, my TikTok has just completely blown up with right. people acu- criticizing me for using the for term spirit time. animal, yeah. which I had I had never. I thought I was flattering somebody, but I was offending others. Right, um, right. Because there so, are some Native American people who object. To right. Me. right. So it was a whole big discussion yeah. among people, and but I had no idea, and it's like, sure. okay, I now know. Won't do it again. I understand. So. Exactly, and, and part of, <clears throat> I think part of um, the process is trying not to um, figure out if somebody's racist or not, or impugn somebody's motives when you're looking at a situation like that. Um, in the same way that, you know, people say, well, you know, Donald Trump said X, Y, and Z, so he must be racist. I, you know, I sort of say, I don't 
care if Donald Trump is racist or not. That's for that's a matter between him and his psychiatrist or whatever. But uh, but there's what you do. And there's how you react when people sort of bring it to you and say this is a problem. Right. You know, if if you make a mistake and people come to you and say, hey, this is kind of a mistake. And is there, you know, could you say this a different way or could you do this a different way? And your response is, hey, I, di- I didn't realize I'm going to do things better next time. That's wonderful. And it indicates that you're um, a part of the process in a, in, a, in a productive way. If your response is, you know, forget you and uh, you're just trying to make me feel bad and you know, I, I know what I meant and that's not what I meant. Well, you know, it's, it's not about what you meant. It's about the power that your words have when they leave your mouth and they go out into the world and they interact with other people. And the only way you're going to learn how to deal with these situations better is to listen to people when they come to you and say um, that something's wrong. And, you know, one big feature, of course, of white supremacy is believing that white people's perceptions of everything are the perceptions of everything. Mm-hmm. So so part of breaking that down is to get people to understand that just because you think something isn't a problem doesn't mean that it isn't a problem. And ultimately, you ask people, you know, would you prefer to have a whole group of people out there thinking that you're prejudiced or racist or insensitive because of something you said? Or would you prefer to just correct it, even if you think whatever you said was completely innocuous and, and, and not worthy of criticism? Um, and on... So- Similar to this point, uh, Tom will remember the name of the author, and I can't remember his name, but he wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Kenji, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, Ibram Kendi. Ibram Kendi, yeah. And he yeah. talks about that, that, you know, people say racist things, do racist things. Are they a racist? One way to deal with that is to not label people and let them, like you said, if somebody does something says something insensitive or inappropriate, they're not a bad person, they maybe just don't know better. Yeah, because labeling people has two problems to it. The first is that people resist the conversation because they don't see themselves as racist. So it doesn't make sense to them if you say, hey, you said something problematic. Well, I'm not a racist, so I couldn't possibly have said something problematic. But if you come to somebody and you say, you can say problematic things and not be racist. <laughs> then, then that opens up the conversation. <laughs> and, and also it just makes it less punitive. It makes it less about a gotcha, you know, oh, you said something and I'm going to make you feel terrible because of it or I'm going to try and get you canceled. You know, I think one thing that people don't understand who are just sort of bystanders in this conversation is that when you resist having that conversation, you force the person who believes that an injustice has been done to ratchet up the conversation in order to get your attention or in order to get the situation addressed. Let's say that happened in a workplace where you you used the term spirit animal in a workplace and somebody who was Native American objected to it came to you and said, hey, you know, it'd be better if you didn't do that. And you said, hey, I was, you know, I didn't mean anything by it. I'm not going to change how I use it. Okay, now you force that person to go to your boss mm-hmm. and say, she's using this term that my people think is, you know, in a way that my people think is offensive. It's making the workplace harder for me. And then you force your boss to take action. Well, that kind of thing can happen out in the world, too. If, if you resist having these conversations, you force people to be more overt and aggressive in how they register their disapproval in order to get the situation dealt with. And that's where we get to these situations where we have really escalating friction and arguments and protests and things like that. You know, especially I found in the TV industry when I wrote about 
when racist things or prejudiced things would happen on TV shows, I always thought to myself, you know, if these producers would just admit that they screwed up and have a conversation with people like me and change it, mm-hmm. it would solve things. And we saw that happen last week. When a contestant on Big Brother used the N-word in a casual conversation, the producers, you know, fans noticed it on Wednesday. The producers put out a statement, I think by the end of the day, saying the guy was going to be taken out of the show. And the very next day, they showed him being called into what they call their diary room where they talked to the producers. And the guy was never heard from again. (laughs) And And they basically issued a statement saying, hey, he used a racial slur. We've told people that we have a no-tolerance policy for that kind of thing. And so we pulled him out of the show. Rather than trying to pretend it didn't happen, trying to um, explain it away, trying to avoid the conversation, all of which Big Brother has done in the past and I write about in my book. This time, they just faced it, they admitted it, and they dealt with it. And now fans of the show are like, hey, they finally did the right thing. This is great. You know, people are applauding them for taking the right action rather than criticizing them for trying to avoid the conversation. And, and so this goes to, uh, to me, one of the issues with Ron DeSantis. He, he likes to talk about never backing down. He's right. never going to back down. He's never going to admit right. a mistake or perhaps a misjudgment, and that goes to the education of in, in black history. I mean, they have been attacked by every angle here on this idea that they're going to teach middle school kids that, you know, racism, I mean, slavery wasn't that bad. They learned important skills, and he won't back down. He will not. Well, He's again, you know, sort of the that. question is, like, what's the point of what he's doing? Is the point of what he's doing to improve the state's education system or is the point of what he's doing to create a talking point so that as he's running for president, he can go to the Republican base and say, you know, I defeated woke ideology in the classroom. Uh, If you're if you're. If your purpose is to create a talking point for a campaign, then, of course, you're not going to back down. And, and of course, that's what uh, the base loves is leaders who never back down. Um, but those of us who have covered government and those of us who've lived a minute know that if you never back down, that's the worst kind of leadership. And, and you know, one of the things that worries me the most about our current political situation is that we have these politicians who are fostering a terrible sense of of how to lead, you know, focusing on these picayune um, arguments that, you know, society had largely settled in the past rather than talking about things like climate change. I mean, (laughs) Hawaii is burning down Mm -hmm. and we are sitting here talking about how to teach black history when we know how to teach black history. Mm-hmm. And frankly, Ron DeSantis should be focusing our, our um, energy and our ideas and our intellect on, on real problems that really need solving, not forcing us to relitigate things that we already decided as a country uh, in a way that, by the way, also harms a lot of people. It's, it's just really discouraging. Um, I just want to remind... Um folks that our guest is Eric Deggins, TV critic at NPR. And if you want to uh, join our conversation or have yeah, a I promise I'm going to talk about TV at some point. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, eight, he's also the author of Race Bader, how um, <laughs> the media wields words to divide us, to divide a nation. I'm probably getting to subhead. How right. the media wields dangerous words 
Divided Nation. Divided Nation. Um, Available on Amazon. And if you would like to um, ask <laughs> Eric a question, the number is 813-239-9663. Or you can send us an email to dj at wmnf.org. And that is just what Robert Ross did. He sent us an email and he wants to know, Eric, do you think Fox will lose much audience after being exposed as cynical liars and lawsuit losers? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think they lost they lost audience because Tucker Carlson left and the way in which Tucker Carlson left angered a lot of his fans and they've been slowly rebuilding that audience um, installing Jesse Waters who is one of their more popular up and coming hosts uh, in Carlson's old time slot and kind of rebuilding and I think um, the audience has maybe rebounded by something like 60% or something like that. Wasn't there um, actually a period of t- yeah when they a lot of conservatives, I think, were turning on Fox because they weren't supporting Donald Trump enough. I know that they weren't. Well, they, weren't always, left, they were not right enough. They're going to like Newsmax and stuff. <laughs> I think that's. I think that's <laughs> always been a tough line that Fox has had to walk. Where, again, like I said, you know, Roger Ailes always tried to have a level of independence so that they so that the. Fox News Channel wouldn't be caught in the situation that it's in now, mm-hmm. where a, a huge portion of the base is supportive of Donald Trump and rejects any attempt to criticize him or undermine him. And and you can get the sense that Rupert Murdoch and the people running Fox don't want to be um, yoked to Donald Trump the way they are, but they are. Mm-hmm. And and and. Uh, and, and 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 Donald Trump can kind of call the shots with them in a way uh, that I'm sure makes them uncomfortable, and that Roger Ailes would have resisted mightily. But um, but here we are, and 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 the surest proof of that is that is not just that um, Tucker Carlson was let go, but all of these disclosures and the result of the Dominion lawsuit reveal that they that the. Pundits and journalists at Fox News did not believe Donald Trump when he said uh, that the election was stolen from him. Mm-hmm. And they did not believe uh, that um, that Donald Trump should have been recognized as the uh, president uh, in in 2020. And, and, of course, that is all counter to what the base believes because they were going on the air and telling them something totally different. So I think one reason why they also lost viewers was because the viewers felt betrayed because there were all these, um, you know, text messages and emails that mm-hmm. showed uh, that personalities of Fox didn't believe uh, what Donald Trump was telling his followers. Mm-hmm. This election was rigged and, and, and the presidency was stolen from me. And it's kind of a good segue to a, another topic, which is... Um, fact-checking, which we'd like to talk about, but then also, ten, when you wrote this book back in 2011, you're right, there there was... We 2012. Had, 2012. We yeah. had um, Twitter and Facebook, but it, it was not fully developed into what it was going to become. Yeah. Uh, we did not have as many... Not as many people were writing online and just uh, armchair journalists, so to speak, <laughs> amateur journalists. If you were writing that book now, how might it be different... Incorporating all this new media and all this new information that we have out there. Um, well, you know, a lot of the stuff was there. I think I joined Twitter in 2007. Um, but one of the things I don't think we realized was the negative possibility um, of this social media world. Like we knew about trolls and we knew that there were mischief makers out there. We didn't realize that Facebook could be this gigantic influence 
on elections and on public sentiment in the mm-hmm. way that it has been. One of the things that um, you know academics did was they took a look at the messaging around the election uh, when Hillary Clinton was running against Trump. And what they found was that negative messaging against Hillary Clinton um, it, you know, had a much longer shelf life on, on social media platforms like Facebook. And that you know, people were much more willing to pass along and believe messaging that uplifted Donald Trump and criticized Hillary Clinton than the re- than the reverse. And a lot of that messaging uh, was rooted in misinformation and disinformation. And and Facebook didn't have a real robust system for reining that in. Mm-hmm. And that also happened, of course, on Twitter. Um, and other social media platforms. And so th- that's one thing I don't think we really realized was like the organized uh, weaponization of misinformation in order to bring political results in this country and other countries. We didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I noticed because I was a victim of it was that, um, you know, Fox News might air something that mischaracterized a story or a column I wrote or something like that. And then it would move out into this uh, alternate universe of conservative-oriented media platforms where people would do posts on, um, you know, YouTube and they would write on their blogs and there would be all these people talking about what Fox News said about something rather than clicking on the link and reading the column and coming to their own conclusion. And, and it, it was all part of this gigantic system that was aimed at ginning up anger, um, ginning up really um, engagement by ginning up anger. And that's how they make money. And everybody's in on it. But it's this giant alternative media ecosystem Mm -hmm. that is filled with false information and misleading reporting. And, um, and, and, and that's another thing that I don't think we really anticipated when I was writing my book back then. Um, we've got a phone call. We've got Nancy in St. Pete who's in the, on the line. We're going to take Nancy's phone call. And if you want to join our conversation or ask Eric a question, um, NPR TV critic and author of Race Bader. This is a pre-recorded show. We're not taking calls this hour. Hi, thanks for taking my call. And it's so nice to have this gentleman on the on the, on the uh he knows what he's talking about, and that's that, you know you always you always have great people. But anyway, um, uh, I just want to point out that that uh, so many of the politicians think that it, there's a there's a dichotomy, and there really is between um, e- entertainment and um, and uh, politics, and that was made on purpose, I believe, to confuse people because. Um, when, when uh, really uh, where the rubber meets the road when they're in court, they say, well, I said, you know, they, they said what they said uh, as entertainment. Mm-hmm. And not, they, they don't have to tell the truth. And somehow that's become okay. <laughs> and, but, but, of course, uh, you know, so, so they're, not held, they're not held responsible uh, as a politician should for telling the truth. And that is where uh, so much confusion comes from. Because if they told the truth, uh, all this wouldn't be happening. And but it's it's touted as entertainment. They can lie, because that's entertainment. But uh, you know, but if it's if it's on the record in the congressional record, they're not supposed to do that. You know what I mean? Well, you know what's interesting is you use the, you use the word politician, but but um, the tactic you're talking about was a defense that was used by Tucker Carlson uh, when he was an anchor on yep. Fox News, and their lawyers said. Uh, that the assertions that he was making uh, were just entertainment, 
Um, but this is what they do. They format their presentation to make it look like a news broadcast. So mm-hmm. the yeah, person who's exactly. speaking is wearing a suit and a tie. They are yeah. speaking behind a desk. They're on a set yeah. that looks like the a set of a news program. They have graphics yeah. over their shoulders the same yeah. way that, you know, Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite used to have. And they're trying to usurp the credibility and the uh, and the buy-in with the audience that yeah. newscasters would have, but they don't want any of the ethical responsibility that comes with being actually being a journalist. So mm-hmm. whenever that's, anyone that's tries exactly to right. hold them to account, they always say, "Well, I'm not a journalist. I'm an entertainer. I'm not a journalist. I'm a pundit." But you know, yeah. as someone who's gotten paid to deliver opinions for over 20 years, I can tell you there's a code of ethics for opinionators too. And you do have to be an honest broker and you do have to be accurate and you do have to be fair. So, you know, even uh, uh, on those standards, even if you accept that Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingraham and all these people are not journalists, they they are opinionators working in the media space and they should be held to standards of accuracy and ethics that, frankly, I don't think they meet right now. Nancy, thank you for the call. Okay, I just wanted one other point is that most people are not that sophisticated to pick up on that. Sure, that's absolutely. Where, that's, where, that's, where it, that's where it all happens. Yeah, that's so that's actually the that. yeah that's actually the sorry, purpose sorry. of it. <laughs> they know they know they know many people aren't aren't uh, sophisticated enough to, to understand. To what understand, they're, they're not critical Thanks, thinkers. Nancy. We've got another call. We've got Simon in Lakeland. Simon in Lakeland, um, you're on the on the line. What's on your mind? Hi, uh, a couple points. My first point is a quote by Ronald Klain, who was the chief staff advisor for Joe Biden. It's from Box of July 14th of 2014. 68% of Americans think elections are rigged. Twitter, Ronald Klain. That's because they are. That's his quote. Now, my question to the guest is, 70-some million people voted for Donald Trump, many of them highly educated. 82 roughly million voted for Joe Biden, the highest of any presidential candidate previously, approximately more than 12 million than the first black elected president. My question is, Joe Biden wrote a book by two associate press based on the life with Joe Biden, the most esteemed individual to be elected president. As they say, behind every great man is a greater woman. How am I to think when she sold her book that of the 82 million people who voted for this individual, Joe Biden, she only sold 250 copies in the first week? Who are you talking about? Joe Biden's book. Jill Biden's book only sold. Jill Biden, okay. His wife. My question is, why 82 million people vote for her husband? Not too many people are interested in their relationship with only 250 copies sold the first week and in addition what does one think Jeff Zuckerberg got for his four million four hundred million dollar investment so you try to put all these issues together not a conspiracy just trying to think are there irregularities in the election Simon, thanks for the call. Let's little, uh, little let's tough to follow that reasoning. One bit, thing I will point out is that that Ron Klain quote that he delivered, 
uh, Ron Klain was talking about gerrymandering. Uh, and he was saying that um, elections are rigged in favor of in- incumbents because of gerrymandering, mm-hmm. not because the tabulation of votes is rigged in some way. It's because uh, people are herded into districts mm-hmm. that favor incumbents um, and, and because the districts are drawn by politicians right exactly <laughs> and the result is, so, so 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 ron Klain did, did write office. that tweet but he was talking and about the result is laws that are more extreme than the electric really would be if you allowed them to like well the, the, the result example. is a chamber that is also impervious or, or or increasingly resistant to the idea that they could get voted out if they do something that their constituents don't like because you know they're in districts where they're almost guaranteed to be reelected. now there is in your book, you write, there's a hunger for more even-handed material and some guidance for sorting the news from the noise. And I think that's maybe even more true today than it was then. I spoke to the Ebor Rotary Club recently about the, uh, the spiraling death of that's newspapers. That's just what we were and, talking about, yeah, the and, commentary versus the, the news. Yeah, so right. what do you, and our, our friend John here operating the board wonders what we can do as consumers to influence this. Is there anything we can do? Yeah, there's a few things you can do. First, you can uh, find news outlets that you think are doing uh, a great job and support them financially. Like WMNF. Uh, like WMNF. <laughs> uh, like, uh, like NPR and, NPR. <laughs> uh, and uh, public media. Uh, I, I don't know if I can say another radio station's call letters on the air, so I won't. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, if you can give to NPR affiliates, if you can give to community radio stations, if you can give to newspapers, that you think are doing a great job, uh, you know, subscribe to them even if you don't read the newspaper every day. Um, if you can give to uh, PBS stations, you know, uh, public media I think is a is a great area where we have very strong ethical standards. We try really hard for balance. Uh, we're working really hard to f- emphasize news over opinionating, even though I'm somebody who opinionates for NPR. Um, there's not many people at NPR whose job involve that. The great bulk of our newsroom is about news reporting and, and, and factual analysis. Uh, so that's one way you can help. The other way is that you can speak out in your social media platforms and, and support journalists and journalism who are doing great work. Um, the other thing that you absolutely have to do is, you know, I always tell uh, media consumers that they have never had more power than they have right now. Um, you can see something on television or read something in a newspaper. You can put up a tweet about it. It can attract the interest of hundreds of thousands of people, and it can eventually uh, pressure whatever media outlet um, you know issued that report into reconsidering what they did if you were criticizing it. You have a lot of power, but that also means that you have to put a little more effort and energy into sorting out media outlets and making sure that they deserve your patronage. So it's not enough to just show up to Fox News and let that programming wash over you. Um, watch what Fox News does. Watch what CNN does. Watch what MSNBC does. Listen to NPR. Listen to PBS. 
Yes. Um, there's somebody um, who does uh, regularly regular analysis of Fox News programming, and they put it right next to the subjects that are covered every day on the PBS NewsHour. And what you find on the NewsHours is this wide range of stories that cover things that are happening domestically and internationally, a bunch of different um, kinds of reporting. And then when you look at Fox, there's like five or six stories that get talked about all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's how a lot of modern cable TV news uh, channels work because they realize they don't want you to turn away. And if they focus on the same five stories that everybody's interested in, people won't turn away as quickly. But then you don't get informed. If that's your only source of news, you don't get informed about what's happening in the world. So you have to do a little more work. And you, as an as audience member, have to consume a wider range of news outlets so that you have a better idea. Because right now, it comes down to even the individual people. There are some reporters on CNN that um, whose work I would trust less than some reporters on Fox News. Um, but you don't really understand or get to know who you can trust and who does good work unless you get out there and you experience a lot of it and you kind of compare. You also write a lot in your book about diversity mm-hmm. and the importance of diversity. Mm-hmm. Can you talk briefly because diversity... Equity and inclusion is becoming a dirty word in the Republican Party, which is shocking to me because it has taken root in corporate America. Businesses are very invested in diversity, equity, and inclusion because it helps their bottom line. Can you talk about how that affects news coverage, though? Sure. Well, again, you know, to me, diversity is part of and parcel of accuracy. If you're going to go cover a news event, then you have to have a diversity of people involved in covering that news event or you're going to miss part of it. Uh, one of the things that we realized when we went to cover the Uvalde shooting um, at, at, at NPR was that um, if you didn't have entree into Spanish speakers and Latino culture, you were going to miss a big part of that story because so many of the kids who were uh, killed and, and, uh, and, and injured in that horrific attack were Latino. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, like so many cities, there, you know, there's sort of white culture and then there's Latino culture in the same city and they see things differently sometimes. So if you're just focused on the people who speak English and you're just focused on white culture when you cover that story, you're going to miss uh, a lot of important nuance. Uh, one of the things we discovered in, in covering the wildfires in Hawaii is that there are some people who live there who don't even like the use of the term the big island. And so if you're not aware that there are some people who live there who Hmm. see that as an insulting term and you don't figure out how to massage, how you use that, then the people who live there, there's going to be some people who will tune out your reporting because they automatically know you don't know them as well as they want you to know them. So diversity, in in my sense, people um, often try to dismiss diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives as political correctness or something people are doing to avoid criticism and somehow it's going to bring down the quality of everything. But what it does is it increases the quality by making things more accurate, by including more perspectives, by being fairer. That's why it's so important. And, you know, there are some politicians and some political movements that are trying to demonize that term because, as I said earlier, what do you do in rhetorical combat? You try to find the strongest 
weapons that your enemy has and you try to turn them into liabilities and the moral authority of diversity, equity, inclusion, in addition to how it is more effective, how it increases the accuracy of reporting and how it makes things better, like that's the strongest argument for it. So you try to convince people that that's not a reality so that you can demonize the word and then people stop using it. We've got just about five minutes left, so let's talk a little bit about TV. <laughs> sure. We got an email, an email from um, Robert Ross, um, who goes by Bob Ross. Um, he says there's a, glut of, there's a glut of streaming subscription channels and a corresponding overload of movies. You can't keep up, and the Emmys have become a worse joke than ever. Two questions. So do you see a thinning of the herd after the strike ends? And about that strike, how does it end? Well, Bob, I love you. Uh, but I'm going to disagree that things are worse than they have ever been or that the Emmys are worse than they've ever been. Um, as someone who's covered the Emmys a lot, they're not. But uh, there is a lot of great material out there. I think what we're going to find is that the streaming services are going to start to run out of new material because of the Hollywood strikes. Um, of course, the Writers Guild of America went on strike, I think, in July. Uh, was it in July? It might have been earlier than that. Writers, Writers Guild of America went on strike, and then right after that, uh, not long after that, the Screen Actors Guild uh, after went on strike. So uh, Hollywood writers and actors have not been working. They have not been making new material. They have not been promoting material that's already made. Uh, and uh, what that has meant, people haven't noticed it as much because the big streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime have enough material to get through the year. Well, people but are watching Suits now. Uh, <laughs> well, people are, you know, people are watching Suits ago. because A, it's a good show, and B, because Netflix uh, put it in a position to where it was pushing it at people. Yeah. Uh, any, anything that gets featured uh, when, you, when you boot up the app is automatically going to do huge numbers. But Suits is a great show. I'm, I'm glad people are paying attention to it. Uh, but, but what's happening is the streaming services are starting to run out of new material. And we'll see in the beginning of 2024 that they'll really start... Uh, to, the cupboards will really start looking bare. Right now, the um, I believe the actors... No, the writers are talking with the, uh, with the production companies now. They've resumed talks. So I think... The smart money in Hollywood is thinking that there might be a resolution in October or November. Mm -hmm. If that happens, um, there'll still be damage. There'll still be a lot of damage. I mean, you know, broadcast television, uh, you know, all the shows that people love, like NCIS, all the scripted shows they love, like NCIS and The Equalizer and stuff like that. They, they haven't been able to come back because they weren't able to make new episodes. And that's gonna, getting that restarted is going to be really hard. Uh, but it will be less damaging than if we get to 2024 and there's no production. If that happens, the wheels could actually come off of the entertainment business and we could see some very big companies um, struggle financially, have to lay off many more people. And, uh, and it'll be much harder for everything to, to recover. So I think everyone in Hollywood is hoping there's a resolution by the end of the year. And that's, that's what I'm betting on. We got ninety seconds left, but we've got Alvaro on the line. Alvaro, um, what's on your mind? You got thirty seconds. Thank you for the wonderful program today. I wanted to mention that uh, in talking about DEI as it relates to education, I think we need to mention the Tampa Five. Uh, These five young women at USF who were demonstrating in support of DEI and against uh, the Santis uh, attacks on education. They were attacked by campus police and the local sheriffs, and now they face 
five to ten years in jail for demonstrating. Alvaro, thanks for that reminder. I appreciate it very much. I'm going to hang up because we've got just a few seconds left for the show, but I appreciate it very much. And that's a good uh, reminder because that's a, a, a case worth uh, watching. Most definitely. Well, Eric, thanks so much for being with us today. We appreciate it very much. Thank you um, for having me. This um, was so much fun. So much fun. We could talk for another hour. We didn't even talk about the Emmys. I know. Yeah, right. We had, um, Except I just got to disagree with Bob. <laughs> they're, they're better That's than okay. they have been. Irene, thanks for answering the phones. And we had media savvy John Dunn here um, running the board for us. We appreciate it very much. Um, up no, next, sound no sound effects, though. No sound effects. No sound effects Up next is Alternative Radio, followed by great music by Harrison Nash. This is WMNF Tampa.